But the more we started thinking about what what we're doing here is really collecting and aggregating needs at this level that nobody's done it before because each NGO has their own needs assessment platform and none of those talk to each other. And if they do talk to each other, it's maybe a PDF or some kind of spreadsheet. So what happens if you start giving frontline workers the tools to post needs and to collect needs in all in one database? And how can you use that data to start thinking about what's going to be needed before the next crisis hits? Sometimes, circumstances beyond our control set us on a path we could never have conceived. This was the case with this week's guest, social entrepreneur Natasha Friedis, when, during the Syrian refugee crisis in 2015, she witnessed the chaos of crisis response firsthand. While most donate money and time, Natasha instead formed an AI-powered startup to match those in need with those able to give to deliver goods and supplies locally through building an online marketplace, initially hacked together using wedding registry software. Now, almost seven years on, Natasha's startup, Needslist, is bringing efficiency and intelligence to the NGO and philanthropic sector, and in doing so, is delivering more accountability and transparency. In this interview, Natasha describes her backstory, the vital steps along her life path that prepared her to be able to execute and lead such a startup, the innovations she's now driving, and her vision to leverage huge data sets to enable better preparation for relief before a crisis even hits, something we're sure to need. I hope that Natasha's story will inspire someone to take on what many others consider impossible. Now, on with the show. Natasha, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you for having me, Mark. I'm so happy to be here. So, first of all, where are you at the moment? I'm calling in from Toronto, Canada today. Lovely. And winter's probably set in there. Not quite. We have some uh, crisp fall weather. It's really beautiful here now. Uh, lovely. Yeah. I wish I could say the same for Austin. Still a little bit warm here for my liking. But anyway, so before we uh, get into your really interesting sort of journey from consulting and doing what you're doing now, which is a, a tech startup, essentially, in uh, the sort of NGO philanthropic se- sector, I would love for you to give us a short overview of your backstory and your childhood and the impact of your parents and your education on your worldview and, and what you're doing today? Sure. Let's see. Well, I grew up in New York State, about in the suburb of New York City. So when I was growing up, my dad was commuting, leaving very early every morning, taking the train with all the other dads. My mom was home full time when I was really young and then started working part time and went back to school when I was about 10 or 11 to get her doctorate. And it was a pretty homogeneous New York suburb, well-off folks. And I didn't... What I, suburb? It was Chappaqua in Westchester. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely part yeah. of the country. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I lived there in the same house from when I was born until I left for college at 18. Perfect. And um, what did your father do as a profession? He worked in commercial real estate in New York City. All right. Okay. All right. So only child or siblings? I have a younger sister who's three and a half years younger. Okay. So you had a very stable, safe, predictable, comfortable upbringing with no sort of exposure to the the realities of what the world was like outside of um, New York State when you were growing up. I think that's a pretty fair, accurate, (laughs) it's a pretty accurate description. 
When were your eyes opened to the reality and let's say be sort of upfront about it, the economic and social injustices and ills across the world? Well, I think it was a bit of a gradual process, but there was a real turning point for me when I was 16. I went and spent the summer in Thailand on a summer program that I guess now you would call it volunteerism, where we were building a school in the north of Thailand for a few weeks and spending some time volunteering, teaching English in a, in a refugee camp. And, you know, it really kind of shook up my worldview. I came home and I, you know, I had a lot of problems with everything I saw around me. It just all seemed so wrong and so unfair. And it was a real kind of turning point in how I saw the world and my role in it. Yeah, I suppose that immersion in of and the, would create a certain degree of cognitive dissonance in anyone going. So what year was that that you went to Thailand? Oh, you're going to age me here. I think it, ah. was, it was 1990 about. Yeah. I mean, I first went to Thailand in 1996-7. And even then, it, there was, it was still underdeveloped. But there, at that point in time, there would have been very little tourism. And the impact, certainly the impact that we've seen over the last sort of 20, 25 years. Yeah, and I actually haven't been back, but from what I've heard about, um, this was before the beach was written. We were lucky to get a flush toilet a couple times uh, throughout the summer. So Yeah, that was like that as well when I first went there and a couple of the islands. What, so what led you to Thailand? Was it your parents instilling in you certain responsibility to do some good in the world? Or was it just your own ambitions and goals to see the world? You know, I think by the time I hit 14, I was just really tired of my town and just kind of being around the same thing. And I wanted to see something different. So my parents always instilled in me kind of questioning and curiosity and taking authority for granted. I wasn't raised explicitly with a strong social justice background, but I was raised to help out your neighbors, to do right by others, and to question everything. And so that's changed a lot in my family. Like over the past couple decades, my, I think, you know, my sister and I have had an influence on my parents, actually, where they've become much more involved in social justice activities. And that's been really exciting to see. But it's uh, been a natural pathway for all of us together. And why Thailand? What led you? Because you could have gone in many different directions. I mean, I know a lot of people in sort of the US venture south to South America, but that was a big step. And, and why working with refugees? Pre-internet. I mean, how did you discover it? That's interesting. It's on right. I think I knew I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to just go to a summer camp or get a summer job. I wanted to see something different. And I think my my parents had heard about this program that offered uh, different kind of summer immersion experiences. And it was a catalog. Like there were different options you could choose. And some were explicitly community service oriented. And some of them were more just go see, go hike throughout the Andes, like you said. Mm-hmm. and. You know, it's hard for me to name exactly what drew me to that program. It just looked, I liked doing things a little differently than any everybody else. And it just seems, if you think about like growing up in suburban New York, this was about as far as you can get, as different. So I think I just went for the extreme at that point. And yeah, there was no, I could call, I think I called home maybe once in the summer and we wrote aerograms. Remember those, mm. Mark? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we certainly do. I did that in the 1980s from Jordan when I was there on a, on a vacation. So at that point when you actually were exposed to, let's say, the, the social injustices and, and the realities, the harsh realities of the, what the, the rest of the world faced, what 
what's shifted in your head? Of what did you start to sort of uh, focus on in terms of your education and where you wanted to take your life? I think it made me really aware of the privilege I carried. And so mm. I came back really wanting to leverage whatever I could to help kind of right these wrongs as I saw it. And so, you know, actually I came back and decided I wanted to be the head of UNHCR. <laughs> it was like at age 17. Why not? Yeah. Things shifted since then. But yeah, I, you know, came back with this commitment to to really help others with a focus at, on that time on, on refugees. I was really aware of how hard it was going to be for people seeing them in the camps. And, mm. you know, at the the camp we were working at was outside of Bangkok. It's called Panat Nakhon. They had incredible, incredible resources set up to kind of mimic U.S. Uh, American lifestyle. So there was like a mm -hmm. fake grocery market where people could learn how to check out because they had never seen chickens kind of packaged in plastic. And it was just phenomenal because you had all these Thai teachers teaching Vietnamese and Laotian and Cambodian refugees kind of how to prepare for the United States. And, you know, seeing that and then coming back and really thinking about it, the first thing I did was actually, I found uh, Hyatt in New York City and I mm. called them and I said, I want to volunteer. Is there anyone around me? And there was, there was a family of Vietnamese refugees. The, there were three teenagers. They were my mm. age and they had just were landed a few months ago to, and they were being a thing with their aunt and uncle. They had lost their parents in Vietnam. And I used to meet with them every weekend in the library and we, mm -hmm. and I was teaching them English and, you know, they had some English, but just helping them out. And I did that for, you know, the, the last year and a half, two years, I guess, of high school when I got mm. back. So that, at that point, there must have been, um, uh, planned migration program to bring people across from East Asia, post obviously Vietnam, but also the atrocities that occurred in, in Cambodia after the genocide. Who was that organized by? Was that a State Department initiative or was it done by an, an NGO? Both in collaboration. So there were official resettlement agencies that were working uh -huh. with the State Department and it's not unlike what's happening now with people arriving from Afghanistan actually. So yeah. Similar, similar in terms of a large wave of people being admitted at once. Mm -hmm. Given that you said that your parents instilled in you a certain amount of values to question authority, um, cultivated your curiosity. How did that go down at school, coming back from Thailand with that experience? Then how did that reframe your view of education and what led you then to go on to study international relations at Brown? There's a lot in there, sorry. I came back and I felt like I didn't quite fit in, I think, but I found some other people who were fantastic and also questioning the, the, the school, the economic system, the global, global capitalism. You know, I found a, a number of peers and there was a shift in some of my friendships and relationships for sure. But I also, I had close friends kind of were a true line throughout it as well. When I came back, it was very clear to me that I was going to want to work in this field one way or the other. And so that's why I was looking for a program in international relations. I wasn't sure exactly what path it would take, but I knew I would want to learn other languages and do a semester abroad. And I was looking for a university experience that would support that. 
Because if you said you had this, uh, you suddenly set your sights on becoming the head of the UNHCR. Was there any mentor or anyone guiding you and giving you advice as to the sort of the path you had to take if that was going to be your ultimate goal? I don't think I shared that explicitly. I was probably smart enough to know, but I had some. Why not? I mean, I remembered one of my early goal setting coaches said, you always have to set big, hairy, hairy, audacious goals, ones that just seem unrealistic. It's true. And just go for them. That is absolutely true. That's true. But I don't think they should necessarily be one that like only one person in the world can do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) At a time anyway. You know, I, I was less specifically career focused when I was younger, Mm. you know, going through university uh, and more just wanting to learn as much as I could. And I, Mm. in retrospect, I think it is just one of the largest privileges in the world to spend four years getting a bachelor of arts where you're not really just focused on next path career wise, Mm -hmm. that your job is really just to read and think, oh, what, you know, what an amazing experience, a joy. And I, you know, I certainly wish that's something everyone in the world could experience. So I was you know, when I graduated, I had these general ideas of, I knew I would probably end up in the nonprofit or public sector. I knew I wanted to work in migration one way or the other, but I wasn't sure exactly what what was next. Mm-hmm. We'll come talk about your, your startup needs list, but could you describe coming out of university with having had that wonderful experience studying for four years and just immersing yourself in education, what you did after that, because from what I understand, you sort of describe the work you do is in human-centered design and that social impact space. Absolutely. So we call it human-centered design now, right? And that's really a term that has been coined by the the tech industry. Yeah. But mm-hmm. back way back when, a lot of what I was learning was I started teaching ESL. I should say I taught after tutoring in high school. I tutored all mm-hmm. through university. I had a part-time job teaching English, and I loved it as a way to just kind of get outside of the university, see other people, see what else is out there. And so I started teaching full-time along the, in Tucson, Arizona, not so far from where you are now, Mark, um, <laughs> in a program where I think all the, all the folks I was teaching were, had crossed the U.S.-Mexican border. They were all Mexican. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible insight into border politics. And teaching English was just a very small part of what I was doing. There was a lot of civic engagement and community organizing work. And a lot of what I was, the way I was taught to teach was with this learner-centered education where you really thought about, thought about what people needed first, Mm -hmm. as opposed to going in and saying, I'm the teacher, you're the student. This all stemmed from Paulo Freire's work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Mm -hmm. which is based in this, this notion of that you're, as a teacher, your job is to kind of untap and help bring political consciousness to your students. And so when I think about, you know, human-centered design now, it's really the same principles that instead of going in with a technology product, knowing what your users need, the idea that you're learning from them and you're help facilitating and uncover and creating tools that can help them talk to each other. Interesting. I mean, as you say, it's a term that's been coined by this sort of the tech business and whole area of user experience focus in developing products. What was it called then? before that term was co-opted by that space? I really think it's really tied to popular education. And so Uh when I first started learning about human-centered design, it seemed 
a no-brainer to me that this was just a, a rebranding of popular uh-huh. education. Although, to be fair, it's a lot less political. I don't uh-huh. want to strip out the political intention of popular education. Human-centered design obviously doesn't have to be yeah. at all political in that way. So were there other experiences or encounters or insights that started to sort of uh, open your mind to doing something that was uh, more entrepreneurial in the sort of the social impact space? Well, and I'm not sure about the entrepreneurial part of it, but I did have another large influence and mentorship in that time in, mm-hmm. in my twenties when I, I was living in Houston, I got involved in a local community organizing effort and it was part mm-hmm. of a national network called the Industrial Areas Foundation, which was founded by Saul Alinsky and was one of the, the, the places where Barack Obama worked actually connected to that work in Chicago, all about basically organizing people through institutions as a way Mm -hmm. to affect change. And so I went to a 10 day leadership institute with them and got, you know, very interested in the role of faith-based organizations Uh in affecting community change. So it was not None of that was explicitly entrepreneurial focused, but I think when, after I had had a few years of work and I went to graduate school and I worked for other people, it was really clear to me that I wanted to do my own thing. And I didn't like, I think a lot of people become entrepreneurs because they don't like having a boss. So maybe less out of wanting to start something and more just wanting to have that kind of independence. But I also come from a family of entrepreneurs, so Mm. it's, it's in my blood and while it was never explicitly taught, you might want to own your own business and this is how you do it. Those were role, my role models. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about that. So in 2015, stroke around 16, you created Needs List. And essentially, when I read about it, it felt like you were scratching your own itch, but with with an with a underlying purpose and doing it also in your 40s, for which is unusual. So that was really stimulated by the refugee crisis that the, the whole world was experiencing, particularly Europe and, and the US. And you based your startup by a, a simple hack of a wedding list to solve a problem that you would have thought would have been addressed by a bigger organization in the NGO philanthropic space. So perhaps you could maybe just explain what that was. Sure. So I was living in France with my family. I had two young kids at the time and my husband and I were both in a position where we could work remotely. We were very Mm. avant-garde before COVID. We were working online and from home and we said, you know, a friend of mine had said, you know, you should go to Europe because childcare is free there while your kids are in preschool. And I said, hey, that made perfect sense to me. So we actually moved to France and saved like $20,000 a year. (laughs) Anyway, um, while I was there, I was doing a lot of work, remote work consulting with organizations along the U.S. border and throughout the country that were supporting uh, refugees and migrants. And I did Mm -hmm. technology consulting and a lot of media and storytelling training for them. And that had been Mm -hmm. a business called Creative Narrations I had founded in my 20s that continued. And I started hearing about what was happening with Syrians arriving in Europe and specifically in France. And this was back in 2015, really just Mm -hmm. said, well, I want to, you know, I'm doing all this stuff on my computer, helping refugees in the States, but like there's probably something right around me and maybe I should see, I just wanted to see what was happening and if there was Mm -hmm. another way to help. And actually I, 
I didn't know where to start at all. I was living in this small village in Southwest France at the time. And so I asked one of the women, one of the other moms at the school, she was Moroccan. And I asked her if her mosque was doing anything because she went to a mosque and I, I thought that maybe they'd be helping out. And so she said, I don't know, I'm going to find out. And so the <laughs> next day, and she said, she said, Tasha, come with me. There's like a whole group of Syrians squatting in these buildings. And I heard they have nothing. Let's go bring them food. So I said, okay, <laughs> let's go. And it was actually Rosh Hashanah. I mean, I'm uh, Jewish and, well, uh, you know, there wasn't really anywhere to go to synagogue around there anyway. And it seemed like, you know, giving back and sadaka is a big part of the holidays. So I said, let's, let's do it. And it was, you know, it was transformative. There were, because we think of France as having a very strong social net, and in mm -hmm. many ways it does, but these were all folks that had fallen through the cracks. They hadn't tapped into the system yet. And so I became part of this ad hoc group, like a local solidarity group, and there were groups popping up all over Europe at this time that were really mm -hmm. filling in the gaps of the social systems, bringing people food and figuring out medical care and kind of helping connect them to social services. And there was a tremendous response locally. Everybody wanted to help. And the needs were, you know, really changing every single day. And I was getting so frustrated because we would post like a list of what we needed on Facebook. And but by the time people brought stuff, it was different, you know, and mm -hmm. or we'd end up with 10 people bringing size three diapers and nobody would bring size two diapers. And so that's where I started thinking, isn't there like a, a wedding registry for aid, it was very clear uh -huh. in my mind that that's what was needed, a real-time way of communicating needs. And I couldn't find one. So I wrote to a wedding registry company and I said, do you mind if I, you know, would you give me a free license? Because it was kind of like a, a higher end one that had the uh -huh. functionality I wanted. I said, would you give me a free license? And this is why I'm using it. And they said, sure, go for it. Wow. And so that that which, was the beginning. It was, I want to say it was called like thankfulregistry.com. Uh -huh. I got to look that up. Yeah. Uh -huh. For a while, Mark, I was registered on like 10 different wedding registries <laughs> and my husband's that's like, what's amazing. going on? Because I wanted to see how they all work. Yeah. And um, that's basically how it started. And then I uh -huh. got to the point where I realized that this was really interesting to me. It was needed everywhere. I was talking to other people and that there was something there and maybe it was worth time investing in it. And that's where I also reconnected with my co-founder for Needs List, Amanda Levinson. She had been a neighbor of mine and a friend, and we hadn't really spoken in over a decade, but we both became part of this like pop-up group of people figuring out how to leverage technology more effectively to support refugees. And mm -hmm. so this is that's where we landed. So what was the reason for connecting with Amanda? Again, she was in the States and she wanted to support the, you know, all these thousands of people as well. And mm. the only way she saw that she could help was to like pack a container and send items across the, the Atlantic Ocean. And mm. it just didn't make sense to her or me. And we started talking about it. We said, you know, why are people packing containers of things like bicycles and pasta to send to Greece? It's like, you know, you think about it, it's like $5,000 to send a container uh -huh. across the ocean. And you know, I was going to, you know, Decathlon, or like I kept yep. getting to so yeah. Decathlon, like amazing European sports brand. The bikes there are so much less expensive, you know, they're fantastic, good. Like, why are people like going out and buying bikes or sell, sending their used bikes and pasta across the ocean? It all seemed totally insane to me. So we really started thinking, well, how can we let people buy stuff locally if they're in the States? Like, how can we change this model, which has been the status quo for decades of sending containers across the world in order to help. Uh -huh. 
We always like to ask around seren- about serendipity in people's lives. And what was the serendipitous moment or set of circumstances that, let's say, interjected in that, that whole journey to needs list? Is there anything that you can reference or call on? There, were, there have been so many serendipitous moments along the journey. And I think a lot of it was, you know, I was in the middle of nowhere, but reconnecting with people I knew from different parts of my life, like Amanda, and finding that other people who I had just met wanted to help. You know, I had people writing to me through Facebook and email and saying, like, how can I help? And a lot of them would say, I don't know if this would help, but I have this connection at this company or my brother Mm -hmm. is a UX designer and would like to help. So there was this really, I think there was a serendipity of goodwill that was Uh happening. I felt very uh, cradled in this community of people Mm -hmm. really wanting to help. And I think what was key there, Mark, is that what people were latching onto was not just the opportunity to to donate, but also the opportunity to do it in a different way. I think the kind of cracks in our systems globally around migration really became apparent in 2015. They're certainly apparent right now. And people recognizing that there was something at a systemic level that had to change. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. I mean, this, uh, we've heard the podcast all in its own right, purely about the ref- refugee crisis right now, but what's going to happen with the impact of climate change over the next sort of 20, 30 years. But before we talk a bit about that, what a lot of people would have done what you did and, and did step up and did things in, when there was that Im- immediate an urgent need to address the, the the tragedy that was unfolding in front of us across Europe and across the beaches of, of uh, the Mediterranean, and then would have gone back to their day job. You didn't. Um, you built on that hack, and you've you've looked at it and said, "There's a better way to do this." And you're now beginning to apply machine learning and so artificial intelligence, essentially, to the bring it to the NGO humanitarian space to be able to eliminate needs in real time in the way that you were doing with the wedding registry. When I read about it, it felt like it's just, it's a brilliant idea because it's essentially, it's a, it feels like it's a marketplace, people with needs and people that have surplus supplies and bringing them together. How are you evolving it and how are you getting funding for it and how have you built it? I mean, what, where are you right now with this? Yeah. So Mark, I think you're absolutely right. It is, it is a marketplace. So we've been talking about it as a marketplace for aid and that's people respond to that from the beginning because we have Mm -hmm. a marketplace for our cars and getting Ubers and for short-term housing with Airbnb and for walking your dog or getting your like Ikea furniture built. Mm -hmm. So when we decided to look for angel investment and venture backing, pitching this as a marketplace was a natural fit because people understand that. They understand the concept. They understand that there is a mismatch of supply and demand. When there's a crisis and there's this tremendous surge of goodwill from both individuals and private sector who want to help, there's not a good way to leverage it and connect it to Uh the need. So that was something that our early investors responded to. I should say we went back and forth a bit about whether to structure this as a structure needsless as a nonprofit or as a for-profit and mm-hmm. really landed somewhere in the middle, which is we wanted to do it with a mission, but... So as a public benefit corporation. We did it as a public benefit corporation. Yeah. And you know, we were looking at, we, we felt that bringing 
a kind of tech startup approach to the non to a sector that was really a bloated NGO inefficient mm. sector would make sense, yeah. and it and it would give us more flexibility than doing it as a nonprofit. Um, I did come from a technology background, so I, I guess I knew what AI was, but I had no intention of building an AI startup or or even a tech startup. I was I knew what AI was more from a consumer perspective, mm. but the more we started thinking about what what we're doing here is really collecting and aggregating needs at this level that nobody's done it before because typically each NGO has their own needs assessment platform and none of those talk to each other. And if they do talk to each other, it's maybe a PDF or some kind of spreadsheet. So what happens if you start giving frontline workers the tools to post needs and to collect needs in all in one database? And how can you use that data to start thinking about what's going to be needed before the next crisis hit? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you start to think about just the amount of organizations that suddenly rush to crisis area areas like Haiti when there's, whether it be an earthquake or a hurricane and, you know, everything from Medicines on Frontier to the Red Cross to wherever. And everyone's got their own individual sort of databases and their needs and they're not, they're not communicating and there, there's no central coordination across these organizations. And even at a, a government level, there isn't, whether it's in the UK or even as you talk about UNHCR. So it feels like you're building something that could be leveraged at scale on top of these organizations that they all plug into at some point. Yeah, that's, that's that, the big that the grand yeah, plan? That, that's the grand mm. plan. And Mark, I have to say, when we first started thinking about this, it was very much thinking we were filling a gap for local grassroots organizations. It, uh -huh frankly, never occurred to me that someone like FEMA would not have a tool like this. And mm -hmm. I'll never forget, I think it was about two years into Needless, we were at a big a conference and exhibition for disaster relief organizations in Nashville, Tennessee. And mm -hmm. this guy from FEMA came over to me and he said, you know, we were at one of those booths, right? And he said, Wow, I remember, you know, when we were responding to Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, and I I had uh, green stickies on my wall representing the needs and yellow stickies for the offers and strings connecting them all. That was 2012. And, oh yeah, my goodness. So that was 2012. Wow. And the market hasn't changed, you know. So the only real change I've seen is that even pre-COVID, two years ago, uh -huh. disaster relief organizations were using freeconferencecall.com to have daily coordination calls and they would start out by listing their names and their organization. Mm -hmm. There was no roster even of who was on the call. Somebody was writing it down and giving it out afterwards. Someone you should speak to. I don't know if you, from your investors, what what level you're at, whether you're approaching sort of now Series A or anything, but do you know Fabrice Grinda? No. Fabrice Grinda is French, but he's based in New York. He's the um, Forbes rated number one angel investor. And his main focus of FJ Labs, which he is his, his incubator, is marketplaces. That's his main area of focus. You should definitely reach out to him. And, you know, I've got a connection to him through Alexander Mars from Epic Foundation. So he's a really interesting character. And it would certainly be an interesting conversation with someone like that going forward. Fantastic. Thank um, you. So, yeah, we can maybe follow up on that later. It also makes me think about well, you know, someone like David Miliband, who's running IRC. IRC. Mm -hmm. I mean, surely someone like Miliband would have the the foresight to spot the the importance of what you're doing and to be able to sort of then connect 
organizations together and bring them together as even if it's a, a sprint to say, how can we deploy this technology? We're actually next- partnering with IRC right now on an initiative that uh, we'll be launching publicly in a couple of weeks called the Welcome Exchange. So that's ah, been right, really okay. exciting. Yeah. But what we found is the challenge for working directly with any one INGO is that uh, this is really a solution that's about bringing people together. And so what you yeah. need is either some type of intermediary, like a coalition or a public sector initiative or a foundation or someone who does want to bring them together because it's hard for just one, any one organization to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. Because it's a marketplace, right? It only works if there's multiple stakeholders involved. Uh-huh. And I suppose as well, I mean, you had your... You're in that sort of unenviable position of all, you know, the real, the real needs test of needs list is when there's a crisis, and you, you, you it's not like you can say, hey, we're going to do a, a small simulation, or we'll do sort of some user testing around of. I suppose what you could do is pick a, a geographical area where you know there's a, a small yeah. crisis and start to test. Well, unfortunately, there has not been a lack of crisis since we started, right? And I think the need for what we're doing has really escalated over the last five Uh years exponentially, and people really understand what we're doing now. I think we Mm -hmm. were actually just a a few years ahead of our time. But what we've, you're exactly right, like it's hard to, you can't sell in, you can't sell a new software in the middle of a crisis either. People just don't want to hear about it. So what we've found is the best use cases to really prove out our model are longer term protracted crises. So, and mm-hmm. there are not a shortage of those. So we did a lot of work over COVID, which was not just a month or two, of course. Yeah. We've done work in conflict affected areas throughout Latin America, throughout East Africa. And right now we're deploying in partnership with a coalition called welcome.us, which is supporting yeah. Afghan arrivals in the United States. So this is a, a longer term initiative, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm conscious of your time, but we are approaching COP26 next week in Glasgow, and we're at a precarious point in our, what we're facing with the impact of climate change. Whatever anyone's views of what's causing it, I think most people now accept that it is happening. And the impact that's going to have on displacement, migration, conflicts around the world, and even if you just look at someone like the predictions on the future growth of Nigeria and the amount of millions of people that are going to go north over the next 20, 30 years to Europe. This is, is something we, ha- we have to prepare for. Accepting that the, these crises are, will become protracted and constant. What's your plan for your platform and roadmap going forward? What's your big vision for this? I think the, when we first started thinking about it, I was really focused on, on conflict-affected affa- populations. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about the impact of climate change, but it was really, actually, it was early on. It was in the right after Hurricane Maria. A woman applied to a job as a UX designer for us who had been mm-hmm. displaced because of the hurricane. And we started thinking about the impact of climate on, on displacement much more explicitly and started um, mm-hmm. bringing that in. So I think moving forward, using our tools to support communities and populations that are affected by climate change will be will be a larger role. What I want to see happen is for folks to use our software, not just for the hurricane, but for uh, all the work that happens before and after the hurricane. And so we're starting to do that right now with the state of North Carolina. They have a license of our software, and it's been really exciting because they wanted to 
get the license um, before the hurricane happened. And mm-hmm. so they're using it for lower grade um, flooding, for longer term economic recovery from last year's hurricanes. And the idea is that you get folks on the software, they're used to it. And if there's an urgent surge of need because of a dramatic weather event that you're not trying to introduce a new technology yeah. at that time. I suppose the interesting thing is, this is where the machine learning and pattern recognition sort of plays a part, that as you start to get more and more data around different events, and you can start to see if it's a category, you know, you could start to look at it in relation to in the US with category four storms, five hurricanes or whatever, the impact on these population areas are going to lead to X amount of need in for these different categories, whether it's food, clothing, shelter, and then allow for, for organizations like FEMA to plan ahead of time. That's that's exactly right, Mark. And that is the longer term vision is to take our data and overlay it with weather data and census data uh, and all the other data sets we have. So we can really better understand what's going to happen before the crisis hits. So think about supply chains and all the challenges we had with supply chains mm-hmm. over COVID. There's going to be another pandemic and we need to do it better. We need to react better next time. And that means having mm-hmm. better understanding of what the needs will be ahead of time. And there's no reason we have the technology and the ability now. We just have to start leveraging it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I know that's the thing that we're still in this, I suppose, for many of us, I'm just talking to my daughter in the UK and they're talking about having another lockdown again in in Scotland quite soon. You think we're still in the midst of this and yet what happens if, you know, if this was just preparing us for what really is to come a really bad, a really bad one on the scale of something where they're, imagine an Ebola at a global scale. It's just horrifying that we would hopefully we're organizations like yourself and and the CDC and other international organizations are putting in place plans now for that sure to happen pandemic. I think it's, it's our tendency is to be as a society and as a collective of societies is to be very reactive around these. Mm. And there, you know, there were certainly people warning about this pandemic and the possibility ahead of time. So I think we have to do a much better job of uh, listening and in mm investing in the kind of preparations and resilience infrastructure so we we aren't in this respond mode all of the time mm-hmm. but it's it's a long haul right for when you talk about let's call it white labeling your technology and other organizations can implement it and create more efficiency in terms of the way that crises are managed. When you're someone like, well, I'll give an example myself. You know, I'm looking at something from CARE. An email came in today talking about the needs to sort of uh, address the urgent need for Afghans and provide money towards clothing for the the horrible winters they face. You know, I see I can give $100 and it will create so many sort of cardigans and coats for young Afghans. Would there be a way through your technology to be able to see, you know, these are the, the needs and you can actually start to track directly where your money is going? Because I think that's the, the concern, you know, having worked, done a bit of work in the NGO space. I know people still give to their universities and their churches because they trust them. And often with the organizations, they go, well, I don't know where my money's going. Will your technology allow for more transparency in, and accountability in, these, in the sectors? 
Absolutely. And it's not just our technology, Mark. We're part of this whole wave of uh, startups in the sector that are really mm. addressing this issue of transparency. So and accountability and the lack of dis- the lack of trust that donors have. And yeah. so mm-hmm. our software per se is not really targeted on individual donors to see exactly where their money is going. But we're working um, with another startup called Enlight Aid that's using blockchain to do just that. And there are oh, cool. a number of other technology-based solutions that comes to mind, which is allowing mm. beneficiaries of aid to rate the services they get, which is just, I think, a phenomenal idea. There's there's a lot of movement in this sector. So when I think about, you know, when I first started uh, Needslist, I was thinking about kind of where do we want to be as a company? And now I really see it much more as I want to see a collection of large sector. technology companies having a real foot in the sector. We're all at very early stages right now. And it's mm-hmm. I think there needs to be some real investment, you know, if not directly in Needsless, then in others in the sector to have a change here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, obviously you set this up in 2016, but you had set up a company before. So you're, you, you like said, entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial spirit was in your blood. And your company, as you've alluded to, was a storytelling company called Creative Narrations. I'm intrigued as to where you bring together the sort of the experiences and skills that you develop with creative narrations to actually help needs lists and tell the needs list story better. How are you using storytelling to to either inspire donors, investors? It's a good question. Um, so. There are two very different kind of companies, but it was a consulting and training company. So we had, mm-hmm. you know, very limited overhead. We never, it never occurred to me to look for external investment. And so it was very, and we were trying to grow slowly that, you know, mm-hmm. it was, I was very happy running that business. I did it when my kids were young. It allowed me to kind of step up and step down as needed. With Needless, it was different from the beginning because I'm not an engineer myself. So I knew we were going to have to hire development resources and that was expensive and there was no way we were going to be able to do it without external investment. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, at the very beginning, and I've, and I've come to see that much more um, clearly now, the only thing we had was our story. When we first started Needless, all we had was that story of why I want, used a wedding registry and why this was needed. And we really built our company on that story. And so when I'm talking to other founders or social entrepreneurs now, I actually, you know, say this to them is, you know, you can call it pitching, you can call it storytelling, but if you can't articulate why you're doing this, clearly you're not mm-hmm. going to be able to bring other people along for the ride. And that's what you need to do when you're an entrepreneur. You're bringing along customers, you're bringing along partners, you're bringing along your staff. You have to be able to engage all of them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think stories as humans, is, is that's the main way we do it. Mm-hmm. You just gave a great articulation in a different way of um, Simon Sinek's Start With Why story that, you know, you don't sell to people by what you do or how you do it is why you do it. Exactly. That's right. And that's why, because this was a problem Amanda and I were facing ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. that carried a lot of weight. We were people trying to help and couldn't do it efficiently. And we, you know, we saw it in others. I mean, you've obviously devoted the, the last few years to building this incredible piece of technology that there's no doubt that is needed in the sector and will probably have greater impact and alleviate the, the pain and suffering and the injustices that are occurring around the world, but they're going to continue. 
But you're also doing, I, I understand something on a personal level, that you're working with some friends and sponsoring a refugee in Canada, uh, a Rohingya from Myanmar. What led to that? I mean, it's, it's, I mean you, a lot of people would say you know, you've, you've, you're doing your bit, but you're actually going even further and taking on something on a, on a personal level. Yeah. Well, when my family and I moved to Canada, we moved here three years ago. Canada is one of the only countries in the world that has a private sponsorship program. You might have heard that the um, U.S. just announced that they're doing a private sponsorship program. They're starting one right now. It was announced earlier this week. But at the time, Canada was known to be kind of the, the gold standard in private sponsorship, which meant that any group of five people could bring a refugee into the country. And as you know, I knew about this before I came here. And as soon as I kind of got through the first year of living here, it was like top of my list because, you know, because it just seemed like um, an incredible gift to be able to bring uh-huh. a, that one person here, you know. And so, yes, I'm working on this kind of in a more professional in front of my computer, technology based, but that's different than helping one person go and set up mm-hmm. a bank account or get a job. So it's mm-hmm. a different you know, it helps me connect, stay connected to why I do this work. And it gives back a lot more than myself when it does too, <laughs> right? So, you know, on that kind of personal basis. So it's it's been really fascinating to be going kind of from micro to macro to micro to macro, uh-huh. you know, every day in the last couple of weeks because John just got here. So it's been, you know, a fabulous experience and working with neighbors to do this as well is just really mm-hmm. exciting too. And it almost takes you full circle back to your days in Thailand working with refugees, but on a, a on a local basis of bringing someone to you rather than going to them. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. apply your English teaching skills as well, just to <laughs> add to your add to your list of things. That's amazing. I mean, if people want to find out more, uh, that I, we do have quite a lot of listeners in Canada and they want to get involved in something like that. What's the organization called? Well, what's amazing is it's not an organization, Mark. It's just uh, through a private sponsorship program where people, groups of five can apply. But I can oh, so get you it, links. So and- it, I see. So it's not, so when the groups come together, it's not done under the banner of an organization. So it isn't, it's, okay, so it's, this is a government initiative. It's a government initiative. That's exactly right. And so you okay. fill out the forms at the group and create what's called a settlement uh, plan. You have to do some fundraising and then, you know, the person arrives at the airport, you pick them up and take it from there. So Okay, if you could send a link, I'll put it in the show notes. Sure. Where do you want to be when we hit 2030? I mean, if let's, let's hope that we're edging closer to a 1.5 degree, not two and a half degree increase in, in climate temperatures, which is going to then have a direct impact on where you are. But I mean, if you've got an ambition and a sort of an aim of where you want to be with the organization that you're building and the technology you're building. I've been thinking about this a lot. I think what I have come to learn is that there are so many challenges in this space and so many potential solutions. And what is important to me is not necessarily that this specific solution is the solution, but that we are actively working collectively on and investing in real dollars, you know, and not Mm -hmm. these pocket amounts in solutions that can help uh, mitigate all these emergencies that we're seeing. So absolutely climate change is top of mind for me, but the lack of equity we have globally is at the root of so many of these other issues as well. Mm. So what I would like to continue to be working 
on on a solution, but I want to be doing it in a way where I feel like we have access to real resources. We've been working in this kind of bootstrappy, can't afford an office way for, we had an office for a while. Uh We got rid of it because of COVID, but you know what I mean? And we want to, when we look at the kind of investment that we're putting in every single food delivery app, you know, we Mm -hmm. need to be shifting those into solutions that are addressing real global challenges. And so I want to be part of that. And that is a legacy. Absolutely. And so if Needles can be, you know, a pioneer in that and to bring others along for the ride, that that's uh-huh. a real change that I want to see as well. You know, I think there's been a lot of replication of the Silicon Valley startup investment winners take all model in mm-hmm. the social impact sector. And I really reject it. And so I don't want to be competing against my peers who are bringing blocking blockchain technology to make aid more transparent or investing. I want us to be working together and figuring out how our solutions can support one another. And so I want to see mm-hmm. a change in our approach to how we fund and support and really uh, nurture these initiatives too. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, Winners Take All. I mean, that was a great book written a couple of years ago by uh, Anand uh, Giordardis. And I was thinking about it before this this call that also the French economist uh, Thomas Thomas Piketty, who wrote the book to, uh, Capital in 2015, where he laid out that when you have a situation where the rate of capital um, return is greater than capital go- growth, you're going to increase economic um, disparity and equality inequality in wealth, and that's what we've seen accelerate over the last couple of years, especially in COVID. And the disparity between the sort of the massive increase in those few handful of people, the, the most wealthy and the, the people who are living in poverty, not maybe as the abject poverty that happened in the earlier part of the century, but it's the disparity that's caused, that's been caused by it. Now, I don't know if you saw this week that the Biden's plan to tax the billionaire class has fallen by the wayside. I mean, you're building a technology to address the the downsides of crisis, but also, as you say, you reject the, the Silicon Valley sort of approach that sort of that the, the private sector and and technology and philanthropists can solve these problems. Is there a role that you could play, Needsless could play, to reframe the debate around? the need for, whether it be taxation changes or policy changes, because it must be hard not to be, to get involved in that conversation when you're doing what you're doing with the people that you're having these conversations with. Absolutely, Mark. I mean, I think about that all the time. At the end of the day, so many of the challenges we're looking at are rooted in policies and the lack of policy change Mm -hmm. and the lack of real investment in better infrastructure and better disaster preparedness, for example, results in these kind of surges in crisis that we know disproportionately affect marginalized populations. So it Mm -hmm. is absolutely related to policy. Every once in a while, I think I should quit this and go work in policy. And I, I think we just need to work really closely. My team, our leadership team, all has a background in, in public policy and international uh-huh. relations and public si- political science. And I actually have been thinking about that as being a central part of why we're so successful. We're not coming from a straight up computer science background. We've really delved into the, 
the problems. And we don't think mm. that a technology solution is going to cure things on its own. So really tying our work to policy is, is a big part of it. How that manifests itself it, right now is still nascent, Nathan, mm. but yeah. we want to figure it out. Yeah. I'll tell you someone you should speak to as well. Another guest, Natalie Bridgman-Fields. She runs the Accountability Council. So she came from a legal background and gave up being a lawyer in Washington because she didn't feel she'd be able to affect change fast enough. And is now working with um, going, the Accountability Council does three things. So it, it creates on the ground resources to help the injustice that's occurring to communities around the world by big organizations trying to build dams and roads or whatever and tear down forests. But they also have a policy unit to then canvas for positive change. And they go to, I think there is an accountability office at the, within the, the World Bank and places like that, that you can go and make cases to stop things from happening that create negative externalities. So she's got that. Uh, so I suppose in, in terms of what you've, you've got your technology and your organization to impact people's lives. But you could add on top of it that policy element to it that then gives it teeth That would well. be fantastic. I love it. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. You, you helped shape the future. <laughs> yeah. So maybe a conversation. I'll introduce you to Natalie. Thank and you. She, you could, she could give you some feedback in terms of what's worked and what hasn't worked. Can we get to the quickfire questions? Sure. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So what principles do you stand by? I think I've alluded to some of them earlier. Collaboration hmm. and cooperation is a huge one over competition, especially when solving solving global challenges that we're facing, all hands on deck. Bringing work-life balance to our work is, is mm. tremendous for us. We've been trying to create a culture with our employees and our team that is kind of not your typical, we expect you to work 24-7 on this, but rather we'll all be better for it if we get a break and to bring our whole selves to the work. That's great. I, yeah. I think a lot of people should aspire to that. You've obviously had to make some big choices in your life in the recent years, but what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but looking back, they'd turn out to be the right thing? We had a really tough time uh, deciding to move to Toronto, actually. Uh, my husband's Canadian. I grew up in the States. Uh, we were living in France and, you know, I always thought we would move back to the States, but it became increasingly hard to justify doing so. This was before these last elections, obviously. And so, it you know, moving to a new country, like a third country with school-age kids was quite challenging, but it's turned out to be a fantastic decision. And I'm really happy here. I love the city. Really, it's a wonderful place. No, I've never been. I would have, it's funny when you've mentioned he's Canadian, you came from France, I would have thought Montreal might have been on the list. You know what? We It was on the list, but it's just even that much colder there and I couldn't yeah. do it. <laughs> Good university, though. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I, I go to nature. I find that when I'm on my computer so much, I just need to get away. We're really fortunate to live near Lake Ontario, and I walk down there a couple times a week. And especially when it, the seasons are changing, it's different every mm. morning. So absolutely, like getting seeing big as opposed to narrow has uh, been huge for me. Okay. You may have answered this, and you're probably are answering it and with the work you do, but what's the one problem worth worth solving? I actually think it's uh, the climate emergency. It underlies mm -hmm. everything and hard to see where we're going to be if we can't figure that one out. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Is there a question no one asks you, but they you wish they would? I find that people don't usually ask me about what it's like to be a parent in this work. And mm. it's it's a big part of who I am. And so I think we create a false separation of that when we're doing mm. these kind of discussions. Well, next time someone does a podcast, hopefully you'll listen to this and they ask you that question. That's, that's okay. Who or what has made you reevaluate yourself? It ties into it, but my kids, you know, they're the mm. ones who ask these questions all the time that make me stop and think about where are my priorities and mm. is this the right path? <laughs> okay. What advice would you give to someone that's maybe about to graduate, about to start a new job, has got an ambition, a uh, big goal like yours, but it's been told, forget it, that's just uh, not possible? I think it's that you can do it, but you can't do it alone. So find the people that are going to support you. Those connections and advisors and mentors have been everything to me. And I really hope other people will continue to open doors for one another. Find an Amanda. Yes. Okay. I've had a few people say no way to this answer, uh, to uh, answer this question, but what's your go-to karaoke song? It's a bit embarrassing, but Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, funny Tyler. Yeah, it's funny Classic. Tyler. Oh, okay. I'll put it on, on our list on our, for our <laughs> Spotify playlist. Is there a recent series of film that you've watched during sort of COVID when we've all been in front of screens more than we probably should be that you think someone might have missed that they should watch? Well, we've been watching way too much, but I we've started watching recently all the murder all the murders in the building, or is it only murders in the building? Fantastic, fantastic series That's... with Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena oh. Gomez. It's so good, Martin. Oh, right, okay, yeah. okay. See, the reason for asking this question is just to keep me going with things to watch. It's <laughs> purely self-serving. Only Murders in the Building. Right. I did notice that Steve Martin would be talking about that on Twitter. So I yes. will watch it and put it down the list. Okay. And the book that you think we should offer our listeners that to come up with good comments on the website or on the on Instagram? We talked about it earlier, but A Winner's Take All is one of the most uh, phenomenal books I've read in the last couple of years. So I think everybody in the yeah. sector should read it. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I did see Cara Swisher interview Anna Diodardis in New York a couple yep. of years ago. And wow, it was great. And that's how I went and got the book and read it. And it's, it's, it's a great one. So yeah, we'll put that down. And the final question is, who should we interview next? I'm going to recommend a young woman named Sana Mustafa. She works for an organization called Asylum Initiative, and she's phenomenal. Force of nature does a lot of work around refugee inclusion and representation. Excellent. Well, once what we do is we always ask for you to make the introduction to us once sure. your episode is live. So hopefully we'll get this uh, out by Monday or Tuesday next week and then great. follow up with an email. So that'd all be great. Right. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate Excellent. it. Well, okay. Well, Natasha, I really appreciate the time and all the work you're doing and we'll continue to track and I'll connect you with Fabrice and also with uh, Natalie. Okay, well, have a wonderful Great. weekend. All okay, right. okay. Bye. thanks very much. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.